This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 12 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806 and Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wines in the world. I will be very aware of Elon Musk's influence. If he reinstates the account of Donald Trump, I will leave Twitter. Speaking of social media, Caro, what hot social media issue went over your head this week? (laughs) Elon Elon Musk. feeling that that was going to be that because well, you don't tweet, do you? I don't tweet. If you tweeted, you'd have thousands of followers. Oh, yeah, and wouldn't that be fun? Not. If any potties out there love Scrabble, this is like the 21st century version of the Girls Book Club weekend. We had an absolute blast. Little Miss Smug over here. <laughs> I wasn't saying that I won it, but I did. I won. My big takeout from this week is News Limited has gone to a new level a new level of complete and utter partisan journalism. Has, they're so shrill, Caro. They're, like, they're so agitated about the Labor Party. It's extraordinary. Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. This is episode 215, and I'm Corey Perkin here with my co presenter and dear friend, Caro Wilson. Hello, Caro. Corey, good to see you. Good to see you too. It's a cheery day today, I think. We've got a lot of cheery things to talk about. Well, it's been another short week. Have you found it a bit odd? I'm really discombobulated by this. You know my views. You know my views on public holidays. I mean, because you know we're journal. We're both old journo's. We never had public holidays. For me, it's only more work because footy is played on public holidays, and everyone agreed after Footy Classified this week that they're absolutely exhausted. <laughs> exhausted. But yeah, it, it, you're right. It, it's a weird feeling week. It's a very strange week, but we're here in the studio. Miss Jane has brought in the most perfect, beautiful lilac posy. And we are speaking of colours. I want everybody to think pink, ladies and gentlemen, because a reminder, next week, it's only a week now, Thursday, May the 5th at 5.30, Carol and I are getting together with Jane Neild, our producer, and a whole gang of potties at Bell's Hotel in South Melbourne. And you can still book tickets. Proceeds are going to Breast Cancer Network of Australia, and we've decided everybody who comes wear pink. It might just be a touch of pink. It might be a handkerchief in your um, suit pocket, gentlemen. Or it might be a whole pink frock, ladies. I don't know. Or gentlemen maybe could wear Or a lovely pink, pink cheater or a nice... Pink it would shirt. Just, it'd just be lovely as as winter descends upon Melbourne town. It would be lovely to have a whole gang of us there next Thursday, as I said, and you can book via the show notes. Just go into the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast um, section in your app and you'll and scroll down and you'll see where you can uh, book tickets. Of course, our show would not be our show without our wonderful sponsors, Red Energy. Thank you, Red Energy. Most satisfied customers they have in 11 years in a row. But I think we made that 12 or 13, 12. didn't we? It's 12. <laughs> I think that's a typo. Miss ja- Jane's been a little bit slack. She has. <laughs> and she's gone she... out to make us coffee so we can say that. We can't. Yes, actually, the cat's away. The machine is rolling. <laughs> Jane. No, I'm not going to tell stories about Jane. And, of course, we want to thank Prince Wine Store. And Miles Thompson will be in later on to talk with us at the Cocktail Cabinet don't forget princewinestore.com.au. Carol, we've had a little bit of uh, of um, correspondence. We have, Corrie. And did you we want? Have. Did you want to? Uh, why don't you introduce the Jess Taylor, and I will reply. Oh, then this is your comments about Julie Goodwin. Yeah, on so Master this is from Chef. Jess Taylor via email. Thanks, Jess, for your email, and thanks for listening. So. Um, Jess felt that your comments about Julie were a little bit mean-spirited, well, quite mean-spirited and cruel. He says, Jess, I should say, has spoken openly, Julie, that is, at the start of the series about her depression, self-doubt, and how she struggled to leave the house to teach at her own cooking school. They even showed Lifeline's details at the end of the episode. She's a grandmother just like you. Let's be kind. That is what Jess is saying to you. Now, you know, you, you brought that up the other day. We had a, I had a chuckle It was my at you grumpy, for I'm, those who didn't listen, it was my grumpy that MasterChef was bringing after last year, which was so wonderful for, with fresh new talent. This year, they were relying on that old old um, system, which, you know, is a ratings winner, I granted, but not for me, where they bring back 
previous winners because or previous I don't watch MasterChef. I wasn't aware of any of the politics. But um, were you aware that Julie had had all these issues when no, you made those comments? I did not. I did not. And I'm not saying that in self-defence. I should read the new new idea and different things like that. And I should have been aware. And I absolutely wasn't. And because I haven't watched the start of this new series, I didn't know that Julie had opened up about all of these issues. But regardless of all of that, whether Julie has depression or anxiety or not, I probably, I, I was wrong. I played the man, Caro, not the issue. So last week I said, oh gosh, you know, if I see someone like Julie Goodman one more time kind of thing, which was not really about Julie, because as you know, I was obsessed by that first episode, that first series back in 2009. Only the first series, Colin. (laughs) (laughs) But I love, it was such a fresh new show and, and people like Poe came into our lives. Julie was an absolutely worthy winner. I loved MasterChef and I loved Julie. And in fact, I have one of her cookbooks, the first cookbook that she produced, but my sense of it was, why are we bringing back these these former winners? I'd love to see the new young folk, particularly young um, cooks up and coming. But I played the man and I didn't play the bigger game. And so I apologised to that. And I did send Jess an email apologising. I was unfair um, and mean-spirited and cruel. They're big words, but, you know, I'm prepared with I'm prepared to take that one. So, Jess, thanks for pointing that out. I should have thought before I spoke. We have it was, a- it was it, Look, he, he made her point um, quite well, but I think um, I don't think we're barred from criticising other grandmothers, do you? <laughs> I'm just being lighthearted now, Jess, seriously. But there are a lot of grandmothers in the world. I mean, there, there must be some bad ones out there. <laughs> just becoming a grandmother doesn't give you carte blanche not to be criticised. Well, or also for me to be kinder to other grandmothers because we're in a grandmother cabal group. <laughs> Although I do find I'm very, I'm, I'm very sensitive and, and kind to my grandmother friends. But yes, Jess, thanks so much for your grandmother. The whole point of this is that you must all feel that you can write into Carol and I with brickbats and bouquets, as we say every week. We're always happy to. And if we don't get to read out your email, it's not that we haven't read it and it's not that we haven't replied um, privately. Megan, Megan Bailey says, Carol, I think fashion has evolved in a good way over COVID. It's become more comfortable. It can still be glamorous. I saw a young woman at the supermarket wearing flowing gold silk shirt and pants. They would have been regarded as PJs in a previous life, but post-COVID, it is an elegant and comfy leisure outfit. So this is in relation to your discussion. We were chatting last week about after COVID, what is the fashion, what's the look? Did you like my um, cashmere little sort of leisure suit? I wore it at our Scrabble game the other day. Well, I did. Did I comment on it? I don't know whether I did because I think I've seen it before. Maybe yes, it, I was a bit rude not commenting no, on no, it. No, no, no. Other, others commented. I, you didn't need to comment. But all I'm saying is I never would have worn that two years ago. But would you – okay, so where is the limit to what you'd wear? You'd wear it to the supermarket, yes. You wore it to the Scrabble tournament, yes. I did say to Clem a few days earlier, I was playing bridge with my mum out at a club and I said, do you think I can wear this to – she said, no. She said, no, no, mum. No. Particularly not the cashmere track pants. I mean, they've. I think they're quite elegant, but no, Clem gave it a, a big No, and down. Caro, you should always follow the rule, the French rule. Remember that French style book that came out oh. by Inez de la Frassange a few years ago, and she just said French woman, women would never be seen dead anywhere other than the gym or their own home in leisure gear of any kind. So that could be... You, you know, even if you've got a great board, it could be the tight leggings or it could be the leisure suit or the track pants or whatever. In France, in Paris, I guess, you do not be seen in public. And I think that is such a good rule in some cases. Not I necessarily count, I count, in your leisure I suit. I count your house as my house. So if I'm coming round to your house for a glass of wine or a cup of tea or a game of Scrabble, sorry, I'm in my leisure gear. I'm just now, I feel I feel like we're straying into Dear Carol and Corrie territory. And for those of you who don't know Dear Carol and Corrie, this is a, uh, it's become an increasingly successful segment of our podcast, I must say. But we it is so successful and we wax on for such a long time we've made it a little bonus episode so each week toward the weekend you might see in your inbox if you subscribed miss jane will send you an alert saying there's a new dear caro and corrie episode and what do we do on dear caro and corrie caro we answer your modern day dilemmas but they might not be modern day dilemmas they might be age-old dilemmas because some dilemmas even though they might involve social media for example deep down it comes back to good behaviour, manners, doing the right thing, or just dealing with the problems that come up in day-to-day life. Yes, everything from texting to um, to 
I don't know, leisure suits in supermarkets to... Or um, in this case, invitations. Yes. But we'll more, we'll more on that in the next episode. Now, um, can I just say, Miss Jane's reappeared, so we have to stop being naughty. Um, but I'm just saying, Carol, you're sacked now as the coffee monitor. This is a great coffee, Jane. Yeah, and thanks. Oh, it's better still, it didn't cost $5. <laughs> yeah. hey, or 6 as I saw somewhere in Melbourne CBD this week. Goodness Jane, gracious. Red Energy's most satisfied customers are 12 years in a row. Can you please get it right? We've been bagging you um, oh, off. Oh, sorry. We've now, been bagging you off air because you weren't here, and now we're saying it to your face just to show we're not completely mean-spirited. Now, Carol, in six quick questions, there is a question relating to the Scrabble tournament, but I just wanted to tell Pod who may have heard us talking about our Scrabble tournament a couple of years ago, which was sadly interrupted and put on hold because of COVID and lockdown. We had it last and weekend. Mer- and Mercy Dashes to Europe. Of and, course, yeah. yes. Mercy dashes, dashes to Europe last last year. But we finally had it this past weekend. There were eight of us and two tables. If any potties out there love Scrabble, can I just say, this is, this is like the... Um, 21st century version of the Girls Book Club weekend. We had an absolute blast. So we played, I think, all up about, was it about eight, seven games? Oh, we kept playing. In fact, Libby and Marg played that morning before they came over to your house. I think I think we played <laughs> six. their own game. I think six. Was it? It three was so Saturday, successful. Three Saturday, three Sunday. We had a score, we had a score board and we had three trophies. One was the Duffers Cup for the pair that, we were in pairs, for the pair that came last, sadly. Um, we had an individual winner's trophy. with We added up all of the uh, the individual scores. And then mm. we had a team's little trophy. Miss, little Miss Smug over here. <laughs> I, did, I, I was being very, I wasn't saying that I won it, but I did. I won. And um, and and then you and Nikki won the um, the pairs trophy, the team's so, event, the team's which, event, which I feel was the most important. Victory. Oh, bullshit! <laughs> oh, sorry, did I say that? Um, so look, um, it was really good. I really recommend it as uh, as a, a format. We could talk about this perhaps at Bell's Hotel in detail next next week. How I it think all we worked. might, or I think we might stick to Heather and Barry talking about their think, fascinating lives. I think Heather and Barry would love to be part of our Scrabble tourney. Anyway, it was a huge success. So, ladies. Ladies and gentlemen, if you love Scrabble, start thinking that as an alternative to your bridge or your book club weekend. It was great. Speaking of weekends, Caro, it was another beautiful weekend in Melbourne. Absolutely amazing weather. And of course, we celebrated it well remembered. You don't celebrate Anzac Day um, on Monday. So how do you feel looking back on the day? Does it still have uh, an impact? Does it still pack a punch? Or is it a day like Australia Day where increasing numbers of people are starting to feel uncomfortable about what is this all about? No, I certainly don't think the latter. And yes, I did enjoy you saying earlier in the show that winter is almost upon us. I don't know where winter is. I haven't seen one sign of it yet. No, she's, thank God. Stay away. Maybe slightly chillier in the evenings, but it has just been such glorious weather as it was on Monday on Anzac Day. Corrie, um, last year, I, I was in Amsterdam on Anzac Day, but it was one of the last big football matches, sure, certainly, and one of the last big public get-togethers because COVID struck again and lockdowns happened again in, in big parts of Australia, namely Melbourne and Sydney. But um, I thought Monday was the day Melbourne certainly came back to life. It, it, it symbolised so much to me. It was a beautiful day. There were 50,000 at the dawn service, extraordinary numbers. The night before at the MCG for the Melbourne Richmond Anzac Eve game, there was over 70,000 people. And, you know, Richmond are just going at the moment. And Melbourne don't get big crowds. The following day, on the day at, I mean, I was at the MCG on, on Monday, over 80,000 people which, you know, people haven't been coming back to the footy in the numbers we would hope, partly because the AFL and the MCG are making it very difficult for people, in my view, but people are still worried. They weren't on Monday. It was extraordinary. And I, I drove from one side of town to the other side of town to get to the MCG and said I'd get coffee for the team. We did our first outside broadcast at the MCG. Admittedly, there was a Perspex screen, but the people... Team, dozens and hundreds of people walking to and from coffee shops around the city, walking to and from the shrine, around the tan. It was the most wonderful scenes. And, you know, that evening um, I did Footy Classified and um, something happened to me that hasn't happened for years. 
I was breathalyzed on the way home. <laughs> Everything. I must say, I agree with you. Happy to report that all, all was well there because obviously I don't drink and but drive. Poli- police on the road, they were more checking where you were going. Were you outside the steel ring of Melbourne? I know. Well, now we're back to being breathalyzed. Well, I the suppose traffic, that's a good sign. The traffic is back in full flight. Um, we have to plan for traffic now. We're sort of re- realising in some ways how we, you know, life was terrible for a lot of people for a long time. But selfishly for me, it was very easy to get around to all the things I have to do. And now that isn't happening anymore. So I thought it was a wonderful day. And I think there aren't, I don't think there are, there's questions about whether grandsons or granddaughters should march for their, you know, their late um, soldier grandparents. Um, I don't have an issue with that. I think the march is a wonderful event. It feels to me like our true national day. Whether or not that's right, people might not agree with it, but it, it's not like Australia Day. It is a day that doesn't really, I don't think, offend many people anymore. And um, even if you don't believe in war, nobody thinks we shouldn't commemorate those who gave their lives. And so, it, it you know, it, it's our, it's not our nominal national day, but in every other sense, it is. I loved uh, I loved the community coming together. Uh, as you know, I went to the dawn service in our little coastal town, and um, it was really quite moving. Standing beside the water um, and hearing the the uh, last post and um, the words of the <coughs> excuse me the RSL director, um, it was a great occasion. There were probably a couple of hundred people there, and it just reminded me of something that's been missing for the past two years in Melbourne, which is when you get the community together and focused on one thing, whether it's um, whether it's the footy or a ballet performance or a theatre performance or even in the classroom or a conference, when you get people together focusing on one thing, there's a really good bonhomie. There's a good sense of community. People feel comfortable together. There's a, there's that you know the Aussie humour comes to the fore, and I, I've missed that. I have missed that. That was that is the thing that I missed. But my my three take homes, I think, from Anzac Day. About the date, although the date does mark the start of what turned out to be an utterly disastrous and tragic military campaign, probably it is considered by historians one of the worst uh, military campaigns that Britain has ever embarked upon, certainly in the 20th century. It is now entrenched in our national psyche. It is part of what we are. And unlike Australia Day, I think Anzac Day is non-negotiable because it recognises all of our past and present fellow Australians who are working overseas with the army or the navy or who lost their lives during wars, and I think this is really important. I love the fact that uh, children and grandchildren walk down the street with their grandparents or great-grandparents' medals on them. I find that quite moving. The other thing I love too, Caro, is it was a real reminder listening to a piece that our RSL director uh, read out on the foreshore in the dark. There is so much beautiful poetry and literature that came from World War One. I. I mean, you and I remember Wilfred Owen's poems. I studied them at school. Uh, he, of course, was killed on the battlefields of France, I think it was. Um, books like All Quiet on the Western Front, uh, such a great book. Um, that wonderful Sebastian, uh, what was that wonderful Sebastian one? Fawkes. Yeah, what was that book? Uh, I'll think of it in a second, which I just love. I'll think of it in a minute. Um, right through to um, important primary evidence such as Charles Bean's War Diaries. He was one of the great journalists like you, Caro. He's in the Australian Media Hall of Fame. Um, for Flanders his... Fields, that beautiful poem. Oh, yeah. that just that makes uh, me about the poppies. John Monash's Diaries and so on, right through to uh, more contemporary works like Les Carline's wonderful Gallipoli um, and... Uh, just so many. So so it was a real opportunity for me to kind of think about that World War One, in particular literature. Birdsong. Birdsong, that's it. Great it's book. By far his best book. And he's written so many yeah. other sort of quite average books. Yeah, it's and such it, a great you book. You can't believe it's the same author because that is just a And also, stunning... dare I say, it was a beautiful film too. It was a really good film. And the third thing I just wanted to make mention of was the RSL. Uh, at, the, at the conclusion of our little service, um, the RSL said, all back to the RSL, you're all welcome to breakfast. They put on a breakfast for everybody. We went down there to have a coffee, not so much to eat, but there was bacon and eggs and there was little shots of rum and it was all free of charge. Fantastic! It was great. And it, and again, you know, at 6.37am in the morning, this great sense of being together. Was there and a two-up game? 
There probably was a bit later, I don't know. But it was just a really lovely reminder of how we've missed community and what community is all about. I was a little disappointed, I have to say, that there was no welcome to country. There was no acknowledgement of the traditional owners nor a welcome to country. I think that happens at the shrine here in Melbourne and probably at other services. But I think we must always remember the land we stand on is not just defined by, you know, white settlement and the soldiers that went to fight for Mother England. It's not just about that. The land that we stood on um, is, you know, is is old and it's sacred and we had to acknowledge that. But that would just be my tip for next year. No, I really lo- I loved Anzac Day. I had a beautiful Anzac Day and it was a lot of it was spent being contemplative. My son, Will, who goes to the um, dawn service at the Shrine every year, said he felt the crowd was smaller this year. I'm not sure why that would be. Maybe people were a bit Well, nervous. it was certainly better know. than two years ago yes. when we were standing outside our own houses with um, lighting little candles at the time of the last post. I mean, it was, yeah, I mean, I think to get 50,000, which is what we were told, you know, were there, is an extraordinary number. Given, given all the issues that we've been dealing with over the last two years. Now, Caro, I wanted to go on to, I don't think we'll talk about the election this week. I've just decided that, well, it's going to be a big week next week if interest rates rise. So let's just see what happens. Oh, and but, the, the, the Labor, state Labor branch stacking, um, the whoa. IBAC interim report's been leaked by The Age. So That is a big story. It is. Although, as Nick McKenzie cautioned, um, I heard in one interview, um, it will be, it might be a bit dangerous for... The government, the federal government, to attack it as an issue, given that it, it goes on on their side as well. But it, it is not good for the state government. Optics it's, are not good, Carol. No, they're terrible. The I- other thing that's not good too, the the Age had the story this week, the Chosen and the Frozen, and they also the reporter also had access to a, uh, a a secret report that Labor put out just at the start of the election, the Labor Party campaign headquarters. Uh, it was a leaked memo, actually which um, said that certain ministers were going to be um, moved to kind of one side, sidelined, if you like, but we were going to rely on these people as our speakers during the campaign, these people being people like Penny Wong, um, Jim Chalmers, Katie Geller, and sidelined, interestingly, Bill Shorten and Tanya Plibersek, and also lovely Claire O'Neill, who I haven't seen a lot of in this campaign. Why was Tanya Plibersek sidelined? Well, we don't know. This is what's really interesting. You know, is it is it um, is it Albo over controlling? Is it his decision over controlling the message? I must say, since um, Anthony Albanese was diagnosed with COVID, I have heard and seen a lot of Tanya Plibersek. But it's interesting that you have the former leader of the party and the former deputy leader of the party who have a wealth of experience, particularly in in the areas of of um, of health and education that are being discussed at the moment that are being so quiet. This memo is a really interesting story. I'm not sure whether everybody's going to jump over it, on it for the next few days, but um, very my, my interesting ta- my indeed. Only, my big takeout from this week is News Limited has gone to a new level, a new level of complete and utter partisan journalism. Has, they're so shrill, Caro. They're like, they're so agitated about the Labor Party. It's extraordinary, Um, even when there's a poll. And the polls are still saying Labor will win. Let's cut to the chase. I mean, Queensland looks a bit dodgy, so does Western Australia, but everywhere else Labor's doing really well, but they were last time and they got badly beaten. So to me, I'm I'm just not taking the poll seriously at all. But even if they're losing polls, um, Scott Morrison and his team... There might be one area they're winning, and that's the headline. It's it's just extraordinary. But well, surely... the Australian keep the Australian keeps milking the fact that um, personal preference for Prime Minister Morrison's about ten points ahead of Albo. So they keep sort of they keep throwing this one out there almost every day. Well, Albo, it's another lead. Albo, sadly, look, he's just he's not a great campaigner. I don't think the um... so maybe it's worked in Labor's favour that he's been. That off he the had radar COVID. for a week. Probably didn't hurt. And Tanya Plibersek's a great performer. I don't She's know what great. that's And also, uh, can, can I just say, Jim Chalmers coming to the fore. Well, watch the, this space. The, the key, the key issue for me is, you know, Victorians. I mean, the fascination, and I know that people are really getting their knickers in a knot about the independence. But Monique Ryan and Zoe Daniel, and what's going to happen with Goldstein and Kuyong, and. Apparently, Josh Frydenberg is is very worried. I just can't see him losing in the end, but extraordinary that he would be so worried. And no one really knows how they're going to go. And you can have your view about independence. And, you know, I certainly do. I mean, you know, is voting for an independent the right way to go when we're in a party preferred system and there, there is going to be a government formed? But, you know, we don't want it to be hung or decided by independence. 
But it will just be fascinating to see how both those women go as independent candidates. The teal seats, the teal movements, the teal candidates, they're being called. And I don't mind the colour teal, actually. It's quite cool. But interesting with Kuyong, Yeah, Caro, but it's good to have – in the end, you've got to make a choice, don't with, you? With, with – um, well, don't tell people how to vote. Don't tell people how to vote. No, I'm just <laughs> – that's just my a personal view. But but, um, but with Kuyong, Kuyong's really interesting because particularly around Hawthorne and Swinburne and university and so on, there is a changing population. There's a changing demographic there. But um, do you remember, uh, oh, it feels like 110 years ago now when Jeff Kennett was Premier and he um, decided he wanted to abolish the office of the Ombudsman. I was involved in reporting. I didn't actually go to the event, but I was uh, on the news desk or something, I can't really remember, when there was a big meeting about this in Hawthorne and the reporter who covered it kind of filed in that night saying, there are thousands of people here. Like the reporter was shocked. The Glenferry Road Town Hall with indignant, agitated, angry Hawthorne citizens or from wherever, I guess they came from all over. But there's just something about Hawthorne, I think, you know, I never underestimate their potential to to um, to be agitated and small L liberal, you know, they're very, they're, they're very aware group there. Yeah, but just remember, as Anthony Green said, Victoria won't be deciding this election. No, but Carol, it's Anthony. Anthony. Sorry, He's Anthony. your best friend. Hey, listen, just quickly, before we go to the cocktail cabinet with Miles, Greg Norman, any updates? Oh, Greg Norman. Look, I, I am just I watched the doco. I'm, yeah, well, isn't it funny? The doco's come out now, yet another publicity stunt. I mean, it's very sad. <laughs> I said that to you the other day. Well, like, about just, the British Open. Yeah, you just were right. Like, just... Why now? After all of these years, why is it? It's a great doco. I mean, it's an interesting sport doco if you love that sort of thing. But the timing of it is just well, the, the loss very of Fowler, where he went in on the last day, six or seven up to win the Masters, and and the seeds of doubt that were sown in his head by commentators, journo's, by Faldo himself. It, but isn't it, it interesting? Have you seen the doco yet? Yeah, it's oh, amazing. Yeah. But at yeah. the end of it, all of it is about how what how Greg was a wonderful loser. What a wonderful man. What a wonderful ambassador. Well, he was, look, he was a good loser, but at the moment, I don't like what he's doing at all. And this is getting into bed with the Saudis. So he, he the latest publicity stunt, as we talked about last week, was saying he was going to apply for the British Open and hope he would get an exemption. Well, the Royal and Ancient have come out very strongly and said, you only get an exemption if you if you have won in the last 10 years or something. Or um, I think that... the. The automatic thing ends when you're 60 or 61, Greg's 65. It's not going to happen. We're not granting exemptions. You know, Greg, go away. So that was one thing. But he has managed to sign up a couple of the oldies, the good oldies, a couple of good European players. He's got um, Sergio Garcia has signed up for the rival Saudi-backed tour. Um, was, wasn't he his son-in-law or isn't he his son-in-law? Went out with um, his daughter for a while. Um uh, or Phil Mickelson, Phil Mickelson, who in January gave a, an off-the-cuff interview to some unauthorised biography calling the Saudis scary mother effers and um, talked about how they murdered Khashoggi and how they, I mean, just basically said, you know, and they, they murder gay people and, while, you know, don't think for a moment I would get into bed, I'd play in this tournament, but I'm happy to use it as leverage to take on the PGA, the all-conquering and bullying PGA. Well, guess what? Mm. He's now... Money talks, Phil. He's signed up, but he's keeping his options open. He does want to play um, in the US PGA, but can he do both? It is just extraordinary what some people will do for a dollar. I mean, really and truly, it is just disgraceful. A GLT to golfers, Phil Mickelson has a really good YouTube on how to get out of bunkers. Yeah, well, he I don't know how he's going to get out of this one. He's, he's really behaved appallingly. And Greg, for shame. For shame, Greg. Shame, 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 Greg. Onto the cocktail cabinet with Miles Thompson. And Caro, now we have Miles with us for the cocktail cabinet. Hello, Miles. What's what are we talking about today? What are we drinking well, today, thought, Miles? I thought the weather is turning a little bit cooler, and I just do a. I mean, I drink a lot of white, so I thought I'd do a nice uh, autumn, cool, uh, you know, cooler sort of weather white that might be nice for everyone. Oh, that is a great idea. You know what? We had a we had a white wine the other night with the kids because we had a seafood dinner and um, you don't want necessarily the crisp, chilled Riesling you might have in summer. So what are you suggesting that we have? So I think I've talked about Kigau before. They're a great uh, Rhone producer from France. Um, and this is their Cote de Rhone Blanc. 
So you can get the Rouge, which is a Grenache blend, and you get the White, which is a blend of um, Viognier, Roussan, Massan, Claret, Berbalanc, and Grenache Blanc. Wow. <laughs> a multi-breeded, multi-bred wine. The words Viognier just get me salivating. Tell us all about it. Right. So they, it, it's kind of one of those wines that really skirts that fresh and vibrant as well as that kind of rich and supple thing really, really well. Um, they're a really great producer. They make lots of this wine, but it's stupid value um, and it's such a sort of complex, rich. It's got this wonderful sort of peach and that apricot from the Viognier and this lovely sort of lifted sort of thing going on. The lovely kind of um, very sort of succulent fruit, but kind of stays really fresh at the same time. Um, really well done. Every time we try this wine, we're always thoroughly impressed. Um, but yeah, it's it's just sort of the perfect, you know, it's got a bit of weight to it. There's a little bit of, you know, richness to the fruit, but it still stays really fresh. So just it, a fantastic wine. It sounds great. And what sort of price is it? So it's $28. Oh, my goodness. Hey, Miles, that is, that is such good value. And I was in Prince the other day to pick up my yet another wine order. Do you know what mm. I did the other day, Caro? I ordered via Gabby, my new best friend at Prince, and I just sent her an email, I want this and this, and chose it off the website. And I'd actually ordered, um, what's the one I love, Miles, by Sam Neill in New Zealand? Uh, the Picnic. The Picnic. Pino. I ordered the Picnic Pinot. I ordered the smaller bottles, not the bigger ones. Uh-huh. <laughs> I couldn't work out why the box I only had one box because I know I'd ordered a lot of wine. What, and when they I unpacked like half it, bottles? they're half bottles. Oh, so my first nice. thought, well, interesting that my first thought was I am an idiot, and why did I not think this is a relatively? I, I thought it was a great deal, Miles. Actually, to be honest, when I got the bill, <laughs> but um, but it was really handy over the weekend. We just Coco and I had we shared one of these little half bottles, and then you know it's it's a good way to go. Superb. I love the half bottles. That's my. That's one of my little sections that I take care of at the store. So I always have it packed with a bunch of. Good well, stuff. I'll tell you what. Half the st- half the store came home with me the other day through my <laughs> through my error. But um, I do love the idea. I do love the idea of this quote, Daron Blanc. I think that sounds beautiful. Yeah, look, they're great, and you know, if you just by yourself or just you just want a quick glass with a friend or something, or you know, and then you can get something more expensive too, and you know, not have to worry about you know finishing it off or anything like that. Yeah, I think they're, they're really great for lots of different reasons. So how can we, how can we buy this, uh, this lovely bottle? Well, just ju- jump online, of course. Um, go to the, shoot the messenger page on the website and put in the uh, code MEWS and you'll get your 10% off. Enjoy this really lovely autumn wine. Sounds absolutely beautiful, Miles. Thank you, and we'll see you next week. See you next week. And that was the Cocktail Cabinet, once again brought to us by Prince Wine Store. Caro, on to BSF Book, Screen and Food, and uh, I might kick this off this Kick week. it off, Corrie, because you've been reading. I have been reading. I think you'll really like this book. In fact, I think you'll love it. I don't, I, I, I'm sure you'll love it. It's called Love I'm without Land. a book at the moment. Can I borrow it? Yes, you can. I dropped you. um I dropped my avocado lunch on some of the pages because I was sitting out in the sun when I had COVID. So I apologise in advance for any little green slimy bits. Oh, you I'm, find thrilled. I'm thrilled. Um, Thank I'm thrilled. I'm passing that over to you. It's called Loveland by Robert Luckins, and Robert Luckins is a Melbourne writer. Uh, this is not his first work, but he is uh, a, an author on the ascent. I think he's a wonderful talent. Can I just say L U K I N S. This is the story. This is a, this is a really interesting story, Carol. There are two time frames. We go back in time to the 1950s. This is the story of Casey, a very young, naive American bride who marries the man she thinks is the man of her dreams, who lives in a little, um, a little Nebraska town on a lake, and the town is called Loveland. And Casey increasingly realises that her husband, who's come back from World War II, is controlling, passive-aggressive. He is a war survivor, never talks about his war stories, but she realises increasingly that she's in a trapped marriage. So that's Casey's story. Yeah, that's a a familiar tale. (coughs) Elephant Walk, remember that movie with Elizabeth Taylor? Anyway, keep going. Fast forward. I loved Elephant Walk. Yeah, I watched it again recently one rainy (laughs) afternoon. She was beautiful in Elephant Walk. Although the scenes with the where the elephants are stampeding were were just so. I mean, look, I know it was the nineteen (laughs) fifties. 
<laughs> Technology wasn't but, great, but, it's but it looks so fake. They they fall in love, you know, in that one in London, they go to Africa. But in this case, she's in Nebraska. That's right. So she's an American girl, an American woman. We then fast forward to May, and May is a, a Brisbane woman in her late 30s. Uh, she is... Um, She's a working class family, I would suggest. She lives with an abusive husband and a really angry, angry teenage son who she's rather nervous is becoming more and more like the father during the day. And she just feels completely trapped. She has no self-confidence. She's working as a babysitter. Uh, she she just realises that all her dreams and goals uh, before she met her husband as a young woman um, have just disappeared. When her grandmother, Casey, dies, to whom she is very close, the family discovers that she knew, of course, that her grandmother was from America, but they discover and they didn't realise that Casey owned this house in Loveland, Nebraska. The long and short of it is May is the beneficiary and May's mother, who is also a woman who had a controlling and unhappy marriage, says, I'm going to loan you the money. You go overseas. You sell this thing. This is yours. So May heads off on a road trip or a Pacific Ocean trip, arrives in Nebraska in the Midwest to a really run-down boathouse, which she now now owns, and which oh, has, you know, it's a, a boathouse well, or a they, house. No, well, in America, I, I had to sort of investigate this. I went on a bit of a Google mission. They lake houses, lake houses are called boathouses, but they have kitchen, living room, bathrooms, two bedrooms. They're not a boat shed. They're not a boat shed. They're not a boat shed. So they're a house, but they're right on the lake. And the lake is toxic. Over the years, it has been a dumping ground for for energy companies locally, and it's, it's, it's a toxic lake. And the boathouse is run down, except when May opens the door, it is beautifully kept. There's not a cobweb. There's no dust. And she thinks, who on earth has been looking after this? Turns out Casey, the grandmother's old friend, who's now in her 70s, a younger old friend, um, has lives next door and has been looking after it. And that's when the story starts to get interesting because this is a case of history repeating itself. Robert Luckins writes beautifully as a woman, can I say. Not a lot of male authors can do that. Um, he takes us on a journey that is suspenseful. At times, it's a bit domestic noir-ish. And, but for me, it's the story of two women who have suffered similar abuse uh, who whose lives come together through this understanding of this kind of common thing that they have had and the celebration belatedly that May has for her grandmother who she always thought was very quiet and a bit of a mouse in the house. Um, I just, I loved the way this whole sort of thing worked. It's a really good setup. At times, there's a little bit of clunkiness with the plot, but I do think that this is probably a case of um, an author that needs to be nourished and nurtured by his editors, as I'm sure he will, because I think Robert Robert Luckins is a fantastic talent. That is Loveland, and it's out now, everybody. Oh, Corrie. Well, I'm looking forward to taking it home. Thank you. Now, you can have that. Now, um, well, no, you can't have it. You have to give it back to me because the book clubs are going to do it in well, the Corrie, next semester. I always return my book. Did I write my name in it? I no, but I'll don't. write it for you. No, no, you no. Like. No, I have to do it in my writing. <laughs> okay. Um, no, I have to for the, if, you know, when I die and the children will know that it's mine. Now, um, Caro, you have been, oh, can I just say also, this came as a recommendation. I was in the Port Ferry bookshop. And I met my friend Jock Sarong there, and both John, uh, Jock and Joe, who owns the bookshop, um, recommended this book. So thank you very much to them for this recommendation. Now you're well, doing. Well, I notice Emily Maguire writes the cover note on it, and I remember reading her Love Objects, which was you know pretty impressive. Um, I think that was a debut novel as well by another Australian. It's a really good book. Now, Caro, you're doing screen. Yes. Well, you said a few weeks ago how much you were looking forward to the launch of Anatomy of a Scandal, which is a book we reviewed a few years ago on this show. Um, it was a, It's sort of a political, it's more than a political thriller. By Sarah, by Sarah Vaughan. Vaughan mm. who, who's a political, ex-political journo. And um, Anatomy of a Scandal is just that. It is a story of three major characters. Um, Sarah, a very, very successful and beautiful sort of 30, late 30s, early 40s lawyer. Kate. Kate, sorry, Kate. I'm sorry about that. Um, yes, her name is Kate Woodcroft, or is it? And 
Then Rupert Friend obviously stars as um, Mr Whitehouse, the very successful politician in a very successful government, and he's very close friends with the Prime Minister. And Sienna Miller, Rupert Friend, of course, plays the politician, good-looking, not a bad performance by Rupert Friend, actually, and Sienna Miller. I preferred Miller. him in Young Victoria as oh, Albert. Yes, he was great. Yeah, I know. He was... Um, Victoria. Um, Not so good on the German accent, but it was okay. Sienna Miller has received rave reviews for her portrayal of Sophie Whitehouse. Now, there's a twist in this story, but, you know, it basically opens up that um, Sophie finds out that her husband has been unfaithful. She's at a party. He hasn't turned up. He says, you better get home. There's been a drama. He admits he's been having an affair with one of his staffers, um, a beautiful young staffer, and she's devastated and, um, you know, they're... Basically, what is this going to mean for her marriage, her perfect life, her beautiful house, her two young kids? Um, then very quickly it emerges that it's not just an affair, that the staffer has accused him of sexual assault, well, of rape. this is the reason he confesses, remember? Yes. Because the cops, have, the cops have nailed him and he thinks, oh, God, I better confess to the wife before it's in the papers. Well, yes, although I, I think I don't think he knew that the rape allegation was go That sort of follows. It's certainly in the show. Yeah, in the, in the book it's very much his, his hand is forced, which I think often happens with some blokes. The, the anatomy sort of word is interesting because on, on every level um, – the politician played by Rupert Friend, I think it's Christopher Whitehouse. Anyway, um, I'll, his name is Whitehouse. They live in a beautiful muse house with Whitehouse as the nameplate on the door. He seems like a very good father, a very good husband, a caring, sharing politician who cares about his constituents, loved by his staff, etc., etc. Or is he? And this is a big question. And it sort of leaves you hanging right up until the end. There's a twist um, because there is a... Um, there are two stories again, and in the book there is another character by the name of Holly Berry who um, was at Oxford with Sophie, who was her study partner, and Holly Berry's story is um, pretty tragic and pretty extraordinary. The question about what constitutes rape, what is sexual assault, what is consent, at what point do you start not trusting people? You know, there's another backstory about entitled young students at Oxford who call themselves the Libertines, of which the current PM and the Rupert Friend character were part of back in the day. It's quite horrific what these libertines got up to, as it turned out, and that story evolves with um, great... Um, oh, it, look, it's, it's, it's very... Um, it, it's a classic British... Men, six, men of privilege. Six-part drama. The review... There was a very funny review that my mum put me onto in The Age last week where it goes, this story is... It, it shows a side of London, you know, you never see in Luther. You never see in so many of the um, wonderful cop dramas we, we love, like Line of Duty. London is beautiful. The houses are beautiful. The houses of Parliament are absolutely impeccable. The country house where um, Sophie runs at one point to visit her in-laws is beautiful. The country where she escapes with her children at one point, absolutely stunning. Her clothes are incredible, as are Michelle Dockery from Downton Abbey, who plays um, yes, Kate, Kate she play, She plays Kate. I mean, um, it's, it's, I wasn't it's, sure about the Michelle Dockery casting, Caro. I have to say I was... Um, I, uh, Rupert Friend was okay because he uh, apparently he um, he really wanted this role. He really he really put everything on the line for this role. I understand. Sienna Miller is terrific. Boy, does she rock a, a cashmere coat. <laughs> um, but Michelle Dockery, I just wanted. Uh, so she is the she's the um, the, pros- the prosecuting barrister. Yeah. Um, I just wanted a bit more. Um, kind of anger in the courtroom because I think barristers would have really gone the jugular if they had a privileged white male, former Eton, former Oxford, wealthy, up-and-coming parliamentarian in the dock. Wouldn't you go? Wouldn't you go big time on that? I thought the controlled, um, the controlled aggression that she showed when she cross-examines him. I thought that was really good. i tell you who I was impressed with, Caro. Josette Simmon, who plays Angela, the uh, barrister um, for the defence, yep. who represents the Rupert Friend character. I thought she was a great actor. Where, where has she come from? Because the two women, the, the prosecutor and the de- um, lawyer for the defence, they have a, a very an, an unusual sort of relationship of competitiveness but also um, 
warm sorority. Yeah, yeah, they do camaraderie. Yeah. So it, no, look, it, look, it, you can, it's must watch. Most people I've spoken to watched it in two sessions, um, drinking gin and eating chips, and um, not. I actually didn't do that, but we all absolutely loved it. But it, look, it it is sanitised, and it's a, a fascinating story. Um, I thought it was a pretty cliched ending, I've got to say, but. Um, I can thoroughly recommend it because there's no, oh, Miss Jane's putting her hand up. There was a bit of um, conjecture in The Guardian, I noticed, about some of the weird camera shots. So there's the moment where he realises he's done, he's going to have to face a court. And it's oh, like yes. Matrix style and he's blown back through midair in slow motion. Did yeah. you not find that yeah, jarring? Yeah, I a, like that. I, I like that. And, and there's and there's flashback scenes where yeah. the modern character becomes the old character. The scene in the lift where the alleged rape took place. You know, there's circular shots and there's one of... Um, um, I had motion sickness. You're yeah, right, Jane. It's and, flashy. and when, when Michelle Dockery, um, Kate actually loses it finally in her beautiful, impeccable, you know, very rich, um, look like it was on the Thames somewhere apartment. That violence she shows, is that real or is that imagined? I mean, I, I didn't mind that. Okay. I didn't mind that. But that, look, some of it was completely improbable, but it was must watch. I'm now going to move on to another political thriller, which is Gaslit with Julia Roberts and Sean Penn. Oh, cannot wait. Which is all, well, it started and it's up and running, which is all about, obviously, goes back to the Watergate scandal and some key characters in that. So that's my next one, Miss Jane. And that's on Stan because I was uh, saying to Corey off air that I tried to find it after hearing a review and it hadn't actually launched yet. So it's only just dropped on Stan. Now, Corey, you've been cooking. We've both been cooking a bit lately, but you've been cooking lamb and I'm very much looking forward to this recipe. Well, I'm going to save the plum cake, which I cooked for the Scrabble tournament. With much acclaim. In it for another week or two, because I think plums will be around for a bit longer. I just thought three cakes in a row, our potties will be getting very fat on all that sugar. So I'm holding this up to uh, the microphone, everybody, so you can see this. This is from the... Um, the Good Weekend magazine a couple of weeks ago, actually Easter weekend. And it's Adam Lau, speaking of MasterChef winners we've loved in the past. And this is his um, his Easter lamb. And I can promise you, Jane and Caro, that my dish looked identical to this photo. And this is one of the easiest, yummiest recipes, if you're a barbecuer, that I have done in a long time. Barbecued lamb leg with charred onion and mint salsa. So go and get a butterflied leg of lamb. And give it a bit of, you don't have to do anything, um, you know, sometimes you have to marinate in some of these recipes the night before or anything. You don't have to do that. Just season it with salt and pepper. And um, what you do is you cut spring onions. Uh, I won't give you the quantities because it's just up to however many. But this is, Adam says this is for six or eight, but I actually increased everything a little bit because I love a good salsa. So six spring onions, and he says cut the spring onions into 10 centimetre lengths and place the spring onions and garlic on a deep plate. Season the lamb with salt and pepper and place it on top of the spring onions and garlic. Drizzle a quarter cup of oil and set it aside for at least an hour. I did it in the morning and we had it that evening. Great. And then you whiz up the barbie, put it on a medium heat, grill the lamb, depending on how you like your lamb, maybe 25 minutes. Turn it once. Don't keep turning it. Just make sure it's got the nice grill. And then you set it aside um, for a little bit longer or you can put it in the oven if you want. Depends how you like your lamb. Everybody's different. Just repeat again. Sorry, is it a leg, a shoulder? Butterflied leg of lamb. Uh-huh. Then when the lamb is resting, and this is what I did in the, at the last minute, I grilled the onions and garlic and green chilies on the hot plate on the barbecue. Um, so green chilies, you put in two large green chilies. And then you chop them all together and then take them off the grill, combine them with mint, about a half a bunch I used, apple cider vinegar, sugar and some more olive oil. Doesn't, doesn't apple cider vinegar bob up oh, a lot lately? It's a good little, it's a good earner, isn't it, in the pantry? <laughs> and then you season well with salt and pepper and you mix it all and it's the most beautiful green colour, as you can imagine, Put the lamb on the dish, slice it up, and then put the salsa all over it. Yum. It's so easy. It is so easy to do. And seriously, as the lamb was resting, that's when I did the chilies and all of that. So you can just do it really quickly. It's a great dish. If um, if you're thinking, oh, good family meal, if you want it like, like us and you use the barbecue during the week, just beware of kids and spice because it is the, the green chilies do give it a real kick, which 
I think makes this dish, but it might be a family beware. But that's it, barbecued lamb leg with charred onion and mint salsa. Jane will have the recipe on the show notes and Jane is holding up the most beautiful book. Look, thank you for letting me crash BSF, ladies, but I received this incredible book from Hardy Grant, who, of course, we love. Um, Love Hardy Grant. Hello, Mandy. (laughs) I just wanted to mention this before Mother's Day because I think it's really tough sometimes to find a Mother's Day gift that you know mum's actually going to appreciate or really keep and treasure. Cup this, of tea in bed and doing the dishes <laughs> is a good start. This <laughs> is... Or, or, you know, a, a voucher to a facial. <laughs> this is called The Flower School by Joseph Massey, who is a, a young florist who is just getting rave reviews. He's kind of the it florist guy of the moment. But it struck me, Corrie, I know we have a, a mutual love of Icelandic poppies. The front cover is... You know, adorned with Icelandic Absolutely poppies. Absolutely beautiful. And I spent hours looking through this book because it is actually really, really useful. So, you know, I love bringing the flowers into you each week on the podcast. But, you know, I've done weddings. I've worked in florists over the years in the past. But I wouldn't quite confidently do some things these days without having to Google and YouTube and watch videos. This is basically a one-stop shop for anyone who wants to up their flower game. If you're starting from scratch, this book has got everything you need to get the right materials and then 20 or so different projects, including bridal bouquets, including table centres, wreaths, you know, those glorious sort of hanging displays that you see sometimes, but all sort of set out so that I think anyone could actually achieve a fairly impressive floral design or display. Plus, there's a kind of new way of doing floristry these days that I'm not really up on, you know, very asymmetrical. He explains all of that. It is stunning. The pictures, I could just read it as just a coffee table book, but incredible step-by-step guides. So if you have a mum or someone, you know, that you're looking for a gift for who could do with a little bit of hands-on information but loves their flowers and loves to arrange flowers like I do every week. The Flower School by Joseph Massey through Hardy Grant. The Principles and Pleasures of Good Flowers. Highly recommended. Oh, that's such a beautiful book. And we might we be doing something with that next week at our... Bell's event, Jane? <laughs> well, I reckon I'm going to have to do the flowers for you. So I'll definitely be using this to uh, make a couple of table centres or so. But also, just a reminder, with Dear Karen Corrie, we do have some book packs up for grabs. If you send us a question for Dear Caro and Corrie via the email, don't shoot pod at feedback.com.au. I am stashing away a little collection of books and we're going to award a uh, little listener gift pack of books to someone who sends through their dear Caro and Corrie questions. Beautiful, Jane. And um, oh, look, I may as well gate crash too, and I'm not going to go on <laughs> about this, but there are so many figs where oh. I come from at the moment. And on Sunday in the Weekend Australian magazine, there was a Maggie beer recipe for roast chicken with figs. Oh. It look, And it's got walnuts as well. It looks absolutely delicious. You chop up a chicken into 12 pieces. Um, it looks incredibly simple. It looks absolutely beautiful. So check out Maggie Beer's um, recipe with figs. I think this, I think Verjuice gets a mention as well. <laughs> well, that was a very um, participatory uh, BSF. Thank you, well, Red Energy. Collegiate. Yes, thank you for bringing us uh, our busy BSF Red Energy powered by the Snowy Hydro. A leader in renewable energy. Gosh, haven't we heard a lot about that statement in the last few days on the campaign trail? Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131806? Ta-da! Caro's grumpy. What can you be grumpy about on this beautiful morning? I'm grumpy about the legacy of COVID and habits that oh, have and become... Oh, and the cough I can't get rid of. <laughs> I'm, more talking, I'm more talking about the social legacies as opposed to the health legacies, which obviously um, is tricky if you've had it and much more, very, very serious. But, Corrie, you know, we're, in the area where I work, the AFL now has a floating fixture. I don't think it's good for clubs. I don't think it's good for supporters. It might be good for TV rights. It came about due to COVID, and I'm very worried that it's never going to go away. I don't like the fact that networks now don't always radio and TV, don't always travel to cover football games to save money because during COVID they couldn't. Um, and And I think calling the game off TV, it's not bad. They're very good commentators, but it's not the same. Working from home, just people have got to get back into the offices. 
I know that sometimes it's good to work from home, but socially and culturally, I don't think it's good, particularly not for young people. The housing crisis, which is something we haven't heard about at all during the election campaign. Do you know that two thirds of local government areas in Victoria did not have one house for rent outside of outside of Melbourne, like in the regional areas I'm talking about last weekend? Um, so many people, it's wonderful, decided to tree change or sea change or go and live <coughs> in their coastal properties or... Um, have now gone back after COVID to Airbnb-ing certain properties. There is not enough places for people to live. And regional Victoria, which was such a good alternative choice for so many people, is becoming worse and worse. So there's a lot of legacies and habits we've fallen into. And don't get me started on teachers who won't get vaccinated. Did you know that they've been paid since January? Since January? It's, it's ended now. If you're not vaccinated for any really pertinent health reason... You're not allowed to go back to school and teach. But up until the end of April, you've actually been paid for staying at home. I just find that extraordinary. Anyway. Oh, I think we're going to get a bit of correspondence on that one. Legacies of COVID. Corrie, um, however, we can move on to more cheery subjects and it's time for six quick questions. It is. For Red Energy and you can kick it off. I want to take you over to one of your favourite sporting events. Caro, I know you're a Wimbledon fan. You used to cover it. You love it. Has Wimbledon done the right thing by banning players from Russia and Belarus? Yes, they have. I know it's incredibly tough on international athletes who come from Russia and Belarus who have absolutely no view on the war, but I completely understand the All England Club's decision because, as they say, the thought that Russia might use one of their sporting heroes to promote their cause is just beyond the pale. Corrie, will Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter stop you Twittering? Well, I don't tweet often, but it won't stop me reading tweets because I enjoy Twitter. I enjoy following the people I follow like Barry Cassidy and Philip Adams and Allegra Spender, the independent candidate for Wentworth, who is a very, very smart and impressive candidate. Uh, There are some real Annabelle Crabb. There's a whole lot of people I love to just, I don't go on every day. I certainly don't spend hours on Twitter like a lot of people do. But I will be very aware of Elon Musk's influence. Um, if If he reinstates the account of Donald Trump, who was, of course, suspended after the January 6, 2021 Capitol riots, I will leave Twitter. But at this stage, there's no mention officially that he is going to allow, under his idea of freedom of speech, that he's going to allow Donald Trump Trump back. But let's just wait and see. Speaking of social media, Caro, what hot social media issue went over your head this week? <laughs> well, <laughs> Elon, Elon Musk. Musk. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling that that was going to be that because well, you don't tweet, do you? I don't tweet. And every time I looked at the 730 God, I tell you what, Dal, if, the... tw- if you tweeted, you'd have thousands of followers. Oh, yeah. And wouldn't that be fun? Not. Um, I was watching the drum and there was a big debate going on there. I was reading the, the right wing columnists have all gone into a spin, you know, talking about how the left wing columnists are all in a spin about Elon Musk taking over Twitter and, you know, ha, ha, ha. And now it's their turn to eat humble pie. I just, I cannot believe, I, I understand that I am so behind the times with Twitter and um, i you know, I, I look at um, even football club presidents who are responding in my AFL world, responding to angry supporters on Twitter, which I reckon don't go there, boyfriend or girlfriend, myself. But, um, yeah, so I just haven't really understood it, except that um, he's, I don't, doesn't sound like the old Trumpster's going to come back. Well, look, the, the thing we have to watch about Elon, Elon Musk is, he strikes me as somebody who is very FOMO. He wants to be in on the party. And I think when Jeff Bezos of Amazon bought the Washington Post, and I, I think he's just so filled with envy in this area, hence the rocket to the moon to be like Richard Branson, hence everything else. Uh, Twitter was on his agenda and now he has acquired it for the very small amount of $44 billion. As somebody tweeted on Twitter the other day, which I thought was very important, Imagine if he could have actually spent that $44 billion on world poverty or hunger. 
instead of instead of a Twitter company. And but, speaking of um, sorry, speaking of Donald Trump, I see Greg Norman has um, reintroduced one of his golf courses. I think one in Miami for his Rebel Tournament after it was taken. The PGA moved um, one of his. One you of, have to <laughs> let go of Greg. You just, <laughs> yeah. So look, I, I think it'll be really interesting to see what Elon Musk does. He says that he's all for um, freedom of speech, but we need to see what that actually means. Corey, what was the trick to winning the weekend Scrabble individual tournament as opposed to the team tournament? A couple of seven-letter words. Yes. I reckon if you have seven-letter words and you get the 50 50 points bonus. But the interesting thing about the seven-letter word 50, like getting 50 points is great. But if you have the dream letters and you know that you can make a couple of words or they can go in a couple of different places, make sure you look at what's underneath because a triple word or a triple letter in the right place with the right letter can take that that 50 up to 85 or I think I got 85 with one of them. And I think when I look back on the – and also because I was relatively consistent too, but those two rounds where I, where I worked hard with those seven letters was um, – was the winning strategy for me? Not that anybody cares. What oh, I was very—I care. I was very impressed. Oh, I think you'd be envious. No, no. We well, Nikki and I chose to attack rather than defend. So if we had a really good word, we didn't care if we opened up a triple word score. Yeah, I think that was good. You were not playing defensive Scrabble. Yeah, you, it was noted you were the loudest group of the four groups. <laughs> People accused us of trying to distract the opposition, which I, I thought might was have, most unfair. I, might have done I said that, and one of our friends said, "I think you're being passive aggressive." I went, "No, I'm not. Just being competitive." <laughs> They're talking too much. Um, Caro, what Australian music milestone was achieved last week? Well, Corrie, this might have passed you by as it did me, but have you have you heard of Troy Cassadaly? No. Miss Jane's nodding well, her yeah, head. But, but Jane's a musician. She knows everybody. Troy Cassadaly. She knows Daryl Braithwaite. Last week. <laughs> Yeah, but we all know Daryl Braithwaite. Last week, Troy Cassadaly at the 50th anniversary of the um, Tamworth Music Festival, the Golden Guitar Awards, won his 40th Golden Guitar Award. He's now gone past Lee Kernigan and Slim Dusty, who I think had 38. He's won the most golden oh. guitars, and we know. Where have I been? We know absolutely nothing about him. I do not know this him. person. Well, he is a spunk. He is an incredible musician. He's a spunk. Jane. No, <laughs> we've interviewed him on Great Australian Lives. The most down to earth. How old lovely. is he? If he's one forty. Oh, he's not that. Oh, he's certainly he was much be younger over than 50, Slim. I don't think he's younger than Slim and Lee. I'll give you. What that. did he start when he was about fifteen? No, he did, and he also never really went to the US. He could have been Australia's Keith Urban, who of course. Oh. Is Thank just God he massive didn't. internationally. He has just played shows, supported regional rural events, and highly recommend getting onto him. Look, if you're not into country, you're not going to like his music, but he is a lovely, lovely uh, man. If you, if you heard a Keith Urban song, would you recognise it? <laughs> I mean, not, I if it came, not if it came and sat on the seat next to me. I, I love Keith. I mean, I, no, I don't love Keith Urban. I love country music. Do you think he wears mascara? Um, I think there's a bit yes. of. And, you know, women wear mascara. I don't mind men wearing makeup. I don't have an issue with that. Mm. Anyway, Corrie. Anyway, Troy Cassadaly, well done. I'd never heard of you and now I have. I'm embarrassed to say. Uh, Corrie, what's this week's amazing fact? Well, Caro, it was Shakespeare's, well, dare I say, birth and death on the same day. April the 23rd last week was the birth of Shakespeare and also the death of him. He was born on April the 23rd in And he died the day, he died on his birthday. Correct. Gee, I wonder how often that happens. I guess it must, mathematically, but not very often. <laughs> right in. Um, so I just thought I'd give you a few Shakespeare facts because I am, I remain in awe of his, uh, his, out, his work output. And I know over the years there have been rumours that he had a syndicate of people like Rembrandt. He had a studio of people who wrote on his behalf that uh, Christopher Thingy Bobby. Um, they said that about Ian Blyton too, Marlo. didn't they? Yeah, but I think Shakespeare is the ridgy ditch. It hasn't been proved otherwise. He wrote his first play, which was Two Gentlemen of Verona, in 1591. He wrote 39 plays, Carol. So between 1591 and his death uh, in... I haven't written down when he died. That's on April, not very helpful. On April helpful. 23rd, yes. Um, anyway, in the space of um, however many years, it worked out to something like nine plays a year. During the plague, when nobody could go to the Globe Theatre and watch any Shakespearean plays, he wrote 
sonnets. He invented the sonnet form. And he wrote, um, I can't see my notes now, he wrote something like 100 and something um, sonnets, 160 sonnets. So he was pretty busy. Um, he married Jane Hathaway when he was 18 and she was 26. Did you know that? I thought it was Anne Hathaway. Oh, Jane Hathaway. Anne, oh, Anne Hathaway. Sorry, did I say Jane? I mean Anne. I'm looking at Jane. Anne Hathaway, 26. So she was an older woman. He invented 420 words, which are now part of our English language, like bedroom, excitement, and priceless. I didn't know that. I did not know that. I did not know that either. Did you know it is bad luck in the theatre to say the word Macbeth? I don't know what you do if you're actually the Bell Shakespeare Company. You've got a season Macbeth. That's a lot of bad luck. But it's bad luck to say the word Macbeth. Guinness Book of Records says that Shakespeare has had more film and TV adaptations of his work than any other author. Hmm, Royalties, wonder where they go. Um, And the only thing Shakespeare left to his wife on his deathbed was the second best bed in the house. Now, that was specified, the second best bed, which makes you wonder what happened in the first best bed. Who ended up with that? What happened to the house? Who got the house? I don't know, the National Trust. (laughs) No, they wouldn't have. The National Trust weren't invented. Oh, really? <laughs> oh no, you don't say. Oh, you've been to Anne Hathaway's house, haven't you? Yes, but how do you know? How do you know? Because um, the will, they've got a copy of the will. Well, we'll see, but we don't know who he left the other stuff to. No, well, well we must. But, will, that, but, but you know, that history my, doesn't relate. <laughs> well, my 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 site that I went to. Anyway, I thought I'd share a few little Shakespearean facts with you. I just thought they were rather interesting. Um, Can strongly recommend Hamlet by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh yes, great well, book. of course, great book. Um, Caro, lovely to chat. Uh, this has been a very enjoyable episode. And don't forget, everybody, we would love you to come to Bell's Hotel next Thursday. For our Mother's Day special, um, our proceeds are going to Breast Cancer Network Australia and we want you to wear pink. Just jump onto the show notes to book your ticket or if you're having a problem with that, contact Jane on feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au and she will send you the link. Thank you, Red Energy, 100% Australian Electricity and Gas and, of course, Prince Wine Store. Visit princewinestore.com.au and click on the Don't Shoot the Messenger page and you will be able to access all of those beautiful wines that Miles talked about today and in previous weeks as well. Don't forget to listen to our bonus episode of Dear Caro and Corrie. And, of course, there are our footy tips as well that come out each week during the footy season. You can send us any messages you like via Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, if you'd like to. I won't be reading it, but I'm sure (laughs) Miss Jane will tell me about it. Or you can send us an email, feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. And, Caro, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy. Most satisfied customers 12 years in a row. Isn't it time you called Red Energy on 131 806 and Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wines in the world.